fierce imaginings. Um, Rosenberg, in fact, is a very awkward fit with all the war poets. He runs counter to many of the currents that we've been observing over the last couple of days. Uh, and yet, of course, he's, he's, he's in those currents. He is, is uh, part of them. And yet you will see that, as I say, he's an awkward fit in every sense. He was an awkward fit as a soldier, and he was an awkward fit as an immigrant Jew in England, uh, as an East Ender and a Jew among the English literary establishment. He was a Cockney Londoner in a, La- in, a, in a Lancashire regiment, which was not that easy for him. And, of course, he was a private soldier amongst officer poets, though, of course, he wasn't the only private soldier, but there weren't very many of them. He was also a painter among the poets, and I think that gives him an affinity with Gurney, that he, he crossed disciplines and he brought the interest and importance uh, uh, and indeed the the discipline, the disciplined eye of a painter to much of his poetry as well. This is one of his drawings. It is of his family uh, in the East End of London. Now, Rosenberg's early years, from his birth to an immigrant Lithuanian Jewish family in Bristol in 1890, Uh, who then moved to the East End of London, uh, are described in her memoir by his younger sister, Annie. She's probably there at the table somewhere. Um, And she remained his indefatigable supporter and promoter of his work all her life. And she it was who would type out the poems he sent her from the trenches, scribbled hastily on scraps of paper. You saw some of those earlier, uh, and indeed at the Imperial War Museum, if you unfold the scraps, you can still see sometimes dust, the trench dust and trench mud in the creases of the manuscripts. Remember, he was a private soldier. He couldn't carry, he, he couldn't store his books on his manuscripts, not even, he didn't even have a dugout as, as officers would when they were in the front line. He had to carry everything with him. A private soldier had to carry everything with him. Uh, he carried his manuscripts folded up in his in his breast pocket, which is why he's uh, they they get damp uh, and they're very difficult to decipher. He's another of these poets who's extremely difficult to edit. Everything scribbled on scraps of paper in pencil. Of course, he didn't have any ink uh, uh, at the front. Uh, sometimes when he's at home, there are versions of ink, but not not very many. Now, in Annie's memoir, she details his reluctance to leave the board schools where his teachers encouraged her brother to draw, his hatred of his years of apprenticeship to fine art engravers Carl Henschel, where he also made himself happy, she says, during spare moments and mealtimes by writing poems. And the librarian at Whitechapel Library records his impression of Rosenberg's single-mindedness when Rosenberg was under 12 years old. This is the rather splendid Whitechapel Library and Art Gallery, still there. I'm sorry to say the library has gone, but uh, the art gallery at least is still there, and the library building was saved and is now part of the art gallery. It was a sort of university for the East End. Uh, Again, Rosenberg is different. He certainly didn't come to Oxford or Cambridge. like Wilfred Owen, he, uh, he, he never had a university education, but 
his university really was here at the Whitechapel Gallery and then later at the Slade School of Art, which we'll come on to. just want to read you quickly the description that Morley Dana, Whitechapel's librarians, uh, the, the Whitechapel librarian description of first meeting Rosenberg when he was nine years old. One day I was approached by a Jewish young lady, Isaac's elder sister, Minnie Rosenberg, who asked me whether I could help her young brother whose aim in life was to be a poet. The next day, a fragile Jewish boy was brought to me by this lady. I took young Rosenberg for walks and discovered him to be perfectly convinced that his vocation in life was that of a poet and a painter. I enjoyed being with this boy and was much impressed by his confidence and sensitivity. You can see he was a pretty remarkable East End lad, but then, of course... That whole Jewish community was a remarkable one, um, and Whitechapel Library and Art Gallery was their social and intellectual centre. There was also Toynbee Hall, of course, which was a, 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 an establishment, um, a centre for uh, lectures and for the arts, one of those, again, great Victorian Edwardian institutions that we've been hearing about, which was, which was paid for by the, or endowed by the by the writ, by the wealthy Toynbee family to promote culture and arts in the East End. But Whitechapel Library and Art Gallery were the places. Um, in the evenings after work, they would collect there. Um, his friends were the painter, Mark Gertler, and David Bomber, two of his friends who went on, of course, to become important painters on the fringes of modernism. Uh, and the poets Joseph Leftwich and John Rodker, who became, of course, an imagist poet, uh, went to Paris and played a great part in, uh, in the uh, growth of modern, modern, modernist poetry in France and in England. And they would read their poems at night under the lamppost when the library shut. They came out. They had nowhere to go, of course, so they would walk the streets of Whitechapel, stand under the lampposts, pull out their poems and read them to each other. And it was Rosenberg, they felt, who had the, who had the edge uh, as a poet. And his letters burn with his desire to engage with as much literature and art as he could get hold of. Whitechapel Library, as I say, was his university. He read whatever he could, whatever Morley Daynell gave him, he absorbed. He writes of Greek tragedy, he read, of course, in translation, Shakespeare and the Elizabethans, the Romantics, the Victorian poets... Uh, and John Donne and the metaphysical poets, which was a quite advanced taste, I think, for, a, for an ordinary East End boy in, in, uh, in the uh, 1900s. And he also read the authorised version of the Bible, now known as the King James's Bible, which, of course, he'd never read. He was Jewish, remember. His, uh, he was never orthodox, but his family were, and, of course, he had a... At the education that all Jewish boys had in the Hebrew scriptures, but he always said, I was a young rebel and I, I couldn't be bothered you know, with grappling with the Hebrew. Um, he was, his allegiance really was to, to English poetry uh, and English poets. But in fact, the, uh, his Hebrew inheritance, of course, does play a great part in the whole uh, landscape and mythology of his poems. He wrote to Georgian poet Gordon Bottomley, who became a, a correspondent and a mentor to him. I read the Sermon on the Mount for the first time lately and got this rare pleasure. It is indeed heroic and great philosophy. 
Now, during his hated apprenticeship years, he took evening classes in drawing. And three wealthy Jewish ladies found him drawing, copying one day in the National Gallery, which art students can still do. And they set club together and sent him to the Slade School of Art from 1911 to 1913. So that was his, again, after Whitechapel, that was his, his university uh, education. And, of course, his friends, Gertler, Bomberg, and others. He just missed Paul Nash, who was there before him. But, in fact, he met Nash. Uh, there is one extant letter uh, to Paul Nash, which is in the tape. He met Paul Nash after Nash had left, uh, had left the slave. Now, while at the slave, he kept up his poetry, and he sent some to Lawrence Binion, another Georgian poet whom we've come across, older man, and a great encourager of young poets and young artists. Uh, Binion was a curator of prints and drawings at the British Museum, so again, there was a sort of double uh, interest for Rosenberg in that Binion was himself, of course, a published, established poet, but also had a great interest in, uh, in prints and drawings and, and art. Again, Binion was one of his regular correspondents with him until his death and was also, with Bottomley, one of the editors of the first anthology of poems, selection of uh, poems produced after the war, after his death. And it was Binion who sent Rosenberg's first self-published pamphlet of poetry. I mean, he, his belief in himself was very strong and he published, he printed his own pamphlets of poems. There are three of them and this was the first one, Night and Day and Binion sent it to Edward Marsh whom we've also come across before uh, Churchill's private secretary, uh, patrician interested in, 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 in the arts, uh, friend of Rupert Brooke of course and editor of Georgian Poetry which we also came across yesterday and this was important too for Rosenberg I find writing interferes with drawing a good deal and is far more exhausting, he wrote to Binion in 1912. But when he left the Slade, full of high hopes, he was, of course, out of work. And like others we've seen, like uh, Edward Thomas, for example, he needed to work. He, 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 they had no money. He felt very guilty about his family, uh, about not contributing to the family income. They were poor and there were other children and so on uh, but he was in delicate health he'd always been in delicate health he had this persistent cough but there was a question of whether he had tuberculosis so he kept being passed fit by doctors but in 1914 on leaving the Slade he went off to South Africa first of all let me show you the young Isaac obviously dressed up for his, uh, for his first photograph and the Slade school picnic of um, uh, 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 of 1940 so it's a famous image um, and it shows most of the Slade School uh, pupils uh, and Rosenberg of course as always is right at the edge sorry it's 1912 not 1914 and Rosenberg not sure that I can work this but I will try is there and you see he's on the outside which is very typical of Rosenberg um, <coughs> that's Mark Gertler, you see, is a much more dashing person, um, and, uh, and so on. And there's uh, Carrington and Bomberg and Stanley Spencer, with whom he became rather friendly. I think they both had a slightly outsider quality to them. Um, so 
so it was quite a, 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 an exciting and stimulating environment. So it was a sad to leave that and leave the Slade and find there was no work. So he sailed to South Africa in 1914 to spend a year with his married eldest sister, Minnie, the one who'd taken him to Whitechapel Library. Um, and I think his family rather hoped he would stay in South Africa. Mm. He was there when the Great War broke out, and we saw, again, one of his poems y yesterday that he actually wrote in South Africa on first hearing news of the war, when he went, snow is a strange white word, that's a... Uh, a chilling opening and an unusual one, and it's partly because he was in South Africa where it was hot and the war seemed very far away. But he returned home in March 1915 and printed again at his own expense his second pamphlet of poems, which was called Youth. But again, there was no work. Uh, and of course, Britain, England, London was in a state of upheaval. Um, it was very difficult. It, there was a sort of hiatus. Nobody quite knew what was happening, but the pressures were certainly building on any young man who wasn't in uniform. And I think we quite often forget this. If you weren't in uniform, you have heard of the famous uh, and rather unpleasant habit of giving young men who weren't in uniform white feathers. You know, you were, these were handed out to I don't think that ever happened to Rosenberg. But nonetheless, it was very difficult to just simply be neutral. Five of Rosenberg's friends became conscientious objectors. Again, this is another area in which Rosenberg uh, and his friends are against the tide. They do not have that sense of allegiance uh, and 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 patriotism that the other poets had even at the beginning of the war. Um, he wrote to the Jewish man of letters Sidney Schiff in October 1915, I have changed my mind again about joining the army. I feel about it that more men mean more war, besides the immorality of joining with no patriotic convictions. Now, I don't think that means that he disliked England, his, but his allegiance was to a different kind of England. His background was urban, Jewish, and the anti-war, in his case, was strong in the background because his family, he, he referred to them as Tolstoyans, they were East European, Lithuanian Jews, one of the reasons that that whole uh, flow of refugees came to England was not simply that they were looking, or Britain, because they came to Scotland too, of course, was not simply that they were looking for work, but they were escaping the conscription into the Tsar's armies, which was a real threat and fear for, uh, for Jewish uh, families in, in Russia. Uh, so there was this great sense that uh, war was, a, was, was an immoral thing, and he did not have the same emotional attachment to that pastoral vision of England as have some of the other poets. We're going to hear about Edmund Blunden tomorrow, who uh, very much that vision was strong, Gurney we've just heard about, Brooke, uh, Thomas, in their various ways they all have that image of this, this, this pastoral idyllic England, however vitiated it might be by the war but Rosenberg's allegiances to the English poets and the English language um, and perhaps because of this and because he wasn't a university educated man or he, 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 he didn't have that expectation, that weight of the literary heritage on his shoulders that the others had. Could they measure up to 
Achilles in the trench, or, or could they measure up to the great war poems of the past? Could they even measure up to Sassoon and Owen? Rosenberg didn't have any of that. Um, the burden of that classical education was simply not there. And so it made, I think, his reactions to his omnivorous reading, which was, as you can see, quite sort of sporadic. I mean, you know, he, he absorbs what he reads in the most amazing way, but it's, it, it's, it's sporadic and spontaneous. And I think that is also a clue to his poetry. However, unable to find work without telling even his family, he enlisted in October 1915. <coughs> I left without saying anything because I was afraid it would kill my mother or I would be too weak and not go. This relationship with his mother. Mothers are very important, aren't they, in First World War poets? It's another theme I think we might um, explore at some time. A lot of them had very formidable mothers, and Rupert Brooke is one, and Rosenberg certainly another. Um, and uh, there is this, this feeling of, of, of anxiety about friends and family, and of course particularly because the family were indeed Tolstoyan's pacifists. He took with him nothing, which is very typical of Rosenberg, because <coughs> he expected to get everything when he was in the army. And of course, he, he said he didn't even have a towel, so he had to use his pocket handkerchief. But I do have, he said, I have with me Dunn's poems and Brown's, Thomas Brown's Religion de Medici, and must carry both in my pocket. So he was equipped for war. Um, he wrote in December to Edward Marsh for help in sorting out the payment to his mother. This is what he's like in 1910. So he's grown up into a young man. Um, this is the uh, image that is uh, in the uh, tape. Um, and it's one of his best images. He painted himself a great deal uh, because, of course, if you paint yourself, you're, you don't have to pay a model, so you're, you're, you're cheap. So um, it's given us these wonderful series of self-portraits. I never joined the army from patriotic reasons. Nothing can justify war. I suppose we must all fight to get the trouble over, which I think is a, another uh, underlying sentiment that many of them felt. They, uh, they felt everything was... was not what they wanted, not what they were really believed in, but they did feel that the trouble had to be got over. You had to sort it out. I thought if I'd join, there would be the separation allowance for my mother. At Whitehall, it was fixed up that 16 shillings and sixpence would be given, including the three and six a week deducted from my seven shillings. It's now between two and three months since I joined. My three and six is deducted right enough, but my mother hasn't received a penny. You can see again how important that was. That was one of the reasons why he joined up, was that he would then contribute. Again, rather like Edward Thomas, the regularity, I think this was a, a, an important motive for many of the men who joined up, which we should, 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 should put together with the other motives. It was a regular job. You had regular pay. Everything was all found, more or less. Um, you might get killed, but at least it gave you a living wage and your family got something <coughs> as well uh, and that was very important now with that same letter 
he enclosed his poem Marching as Seen from the Left Fire. And I'm afraid I haven't got a handout and I haven't got it on PowerPoint as I am a PowerPoint virgin and this is my first one, so you must be bear with me. Um, but I'm just going to read you, I think it's probably in your anthology, it's quite a well-known poem, it'll certainly be on the website. I won't read all of it, but I just want to give you a quality of it because it is very much the painter's eye observing the war, and this is one thing we haven't quite, we've had the musician's eye, um, we've had the countryman's eye, we've had all sorts of eyes, we haven't had a painter yet, and this is the painter. My eyes catch ruddy necks sturdily pressed back, all a red brick moving glint like flaming pendulums, hands swing across the khaki, mustard-coloured khaki, to the automatic feet. We husband the ancient glory in these bared necks and hands. Not broke is the forge of Mars, but a subtler brain beats iron to shoe the hooves of death who pours dynamic air now. Blind fingers loose an iron cloud to rain immortal darkness on strong eyes. And I found myself carried away there and did give you the whole poem. And it is obviously one you do need to look at again. I, I, but particularly that first part, the ruddy necks and the, the flaming pendulums, the hands, it's very like the sort of pictures that his, his mates at the Slade would go on to, uh, to paint. There's a famous one by Mark Gertler uh, of a sort of carousel uh, of, 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 of Britain going into, into the war. Um, and uh, people like William Roberts, who he didn't know but was also uh, a Jewish, uh, and of course the futurists of whom we heard, the vorticists, Wyndham Lewis, the sort of homegrown English futurism, they would all produce images of a sort of mechanised war affecting the soldiers particularly seen as parts of a, a cogs in a machine. So you would have this very modernist approach uh, this abstract idea, um, abstracting the human and turning it into something mechanical. And Rosenberg is doing that in his poem. I just wanted to show you one of his images. Now, this is called Hark, Hark, the Lark. Now, this is his, a slave drawing, um, uh, which he did in 1912. And again, you can see that there is, there's a lot of talk about modernism, and there's a great debate about the modernism in, in the poetry, but you can see it certainly in beginning in the in the drawings. Uh, you have this is this is somebody who has actually probably seen Cezanne in the in the great post-impressionist exhibition of 1910, uh, and certainly the Slade is beginning to take that up, much to the horror of many of its professors. Um, so you can see that beginning, and so he was aware of all these. He was aware of, of, of modernist tendencies, and of course his great friend John Rodker would later embrace imagism, um, uh, the, one of the, the first manifestations, really, of, of modernist poetry. So he's aware of all these things, but he's a, he's an he's a up, paid-up member of the awkward squad, is Rosenberg. He won't actually commit himself to any particular movement, uh, however much his, his, his friends did. Um, and again, as a bantam... This means someone who was too small to be in the regular uh, in the regular army. He was only five foot three, but they were getting desperate, of course, by by this time. 
Uh, and in fact, they broke up the first Bantam Battalion because everybody was too unfit. But Rosenberg was retained as one of the fitter members, so you can see how things were, were beginning to go. He was moved from battalion to battalion. I have to eat out of a basin together with some horribly smelling scavenger who spits and sneezes into it, etc. It is most revolting. I don't mind the hard sleeping, the stiff marches and so on, but this is unbearable. Besides, my being a Jew makes it bad among these wretches. It's just tossed off then as a sort of shrug, something that you expect. Um, as partly that, I think that Jewish fastidiousness, his mother, of course, had been horrified at the thought of the, of the scavengers spitting into his, into his bowl. Um, he ends up as Private 22311, still in a Bantam Battalion, the 11th King's Own Royal Lancasters. Why does he end up in a Lancashire regiment? Very quickly, it's all to do with the fact that um, the, uh, so many of the key people in the north of England, miners, uh, mill workers and so on, rushed to, to join up, that they were starting to lose men from these key jobs, and so they made them reserved, which meant then that the Lancashire Regiment, the Northern Regiments, were short of men. So that's why Rosenberg ended up in a Lancashire Regiment. And that was hard. If he'd been in a London Regiment, or even in the Artist Rifles, um, I think it would have been easier. But to be uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a... Their language was different. He got on all right in the end, but it was a, it was a tough... It was tough. He, you know, he was away from anybody that could have been a, a mate, I think, or somebody who came from a background that he would understand, who'd understand him. Home on embarkation leave in spring 1916. There we are. That's actually 1915 before he goes into the war. That's another one. Rather Gertler-like, I always thought. Remember Gertler in the Slade picnic wearing his jaunty hat in the front. And I always felt that Rosenberg, who rather likes that hat, paints himself in it, was slightly setting himself up against the rather dashing Gertler, who had, of course, you know, much more uh, success, social success, than Rosenberg did. Um, he saw through his, the press his final pamphlet of poems, Moses, and the battalion went to France, was sent to France in June 1916, just before the Somme offensive, which began on the 1st of July. Now, Rosenberg's division, the 40th Division, was inexorably drawn southwards to replace the ravaged Somme <coughs> unit. So he wasn't actually on the Somme on the 1st of, of, of July, but of course they knew it was happening and they were drawn in to replace. You remember the 60,000 casualties on the first day and so on and so forth of the Somme. So they really needed uh, the men. In August, he sent home his poem, August 1914. What in our lives is burnt in the fire of this? The heart's dear granary, the much we shall miss. Three lives hath one life, iron, honey, gold. The gold, the honey gone, left is the hard and cold. Again, not a direct poem about the war. Uh, only the title really gives you that clue, but there is that. And again, for Rosenberg, a very simple, focused poem. Perhaps the imagist influence of his friend John Rodker, 
Um, but he also, of course, loved the, the Elizabethan lyrics, and of course, there is always John Donne as well. So, again, a melange of influences which he could take and use as he wanted. His first letter to Binion from France, November 1916, is his great statement on war and poetry. I am determined that this war, with all its powers for devastation, shall not master my poetry. That is, if I am lucky enough to come through it all right, I will not leave a corner of my consciousness covered up, but saturate myself with the strange, extraordinary new conditions of this life, and it will all refine itself into poetry later on. And when I was hearing Philip talking about uh, Gurney, um, that phrase that Gurney used about the experience that the experience may be crystallized and glorified. He was talking about hoping that it would all emerge in his po in his music. It's a very similar impulse here to, to what Rosenberg is thinking. We're going to use this experience. It is it is terrible and we may not come through it. But if we do, it's really going to count. It's going to, to validate what we have been through. Now typically of Rosenberg, his letters and his draft poems to, uh, to all his correspondence, as I said, are written largely in pencil. In haste, I scrawl abominably, he says to Bottomley, and on whatever paper you could get hold of. And you saw uh, one earlier um, that, that Stuart showed us on Salvation Army paper, which is rather odd for a Jewish poet. And there are others from uh, the YMCA. They have this, this sort of scrawl, you know, for, 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 for Christ and, you know, and, 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 and all of that. But of course, these institutions were the only ones behind the lines where you could get a free cup of tea, uh, some light to write by, a bit of warmth, and they would give you pencil and paper. And this to Rosenberg was crucial. Remember, he's not an officer. He can't get hold of these things. He's got nowhere to keep them. All got to be in his pack. And in fact, he says to his correspondents, who all wanted to send him books, bless them, all these Edwardian Georgian poets, you know, sitting in the British Library and the British Museum, as it then was, sitting in their studies, think for Rosenberg he'd love, of course he would love books, but he can't have anywhere to put them. So he says, don't send me books, I just lose them. And if he is sent something, he was sent the, the Georgian book, because it had his poem in it, and he sent it straight, he looked at it to see that it, his poem was in there, and he sent it straight back. He said, I've sent it straight back home for safekeeping, because otherwise it would go. You know how impossible it is to work, to work it out, placed as I am, he means his poem. If I had been an officer, I might have managed it, but we Tommies are too full up. And that's a letter to Bottomley. And he explained to Edward Marsh in May 1917, it is only when we get a bit of rest and the others might be gambling or squabbling, I add a line or two and continue that way. No writer's block for Rosenberg, he couldn't afford it, he didn't have the time, you know, if you had a moment you just had to focus and scribble it, get it done somehow. And that summer he sent home three versions of his great poem, Break of Day, in the Trenches. And he defends, and that is the one on your sheet, and we will be looking at that. Um, and he defended the poem, in fact, to Marsh in 
August 1916. Now, Marsh was tending to be rather critical of Rosenberg's poetry. I mean, he, was, he encouraged him, and one must never forget that. I mean, you know, it was a lifeline to him to have someone like Marsh interested in him. But, of course, Marsh was, a, uh, uh, as we've heard, an Edwardian and a Georgian. Um, and although he certainly subscribed to the idea, of course, of the freshness of the Georgian you know, the Georgian approach. It wasn't as, perhaps as fresh as all that, and he found Rosenberg difficult. He found Rosenberg's, and a lot of people do find. He's not the easiest of poets. He's not the most accessible of poets. He doesn't instantly, I think, strike him. Some of his verses do, some of his lines do, but you do need to give him attention and, uh, 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 and reread and think about what he's saying, think about his images. So this is what he says to Marsh. You know the conditions I have always worked under, and particularly with this last lot of poems. You know how earnestly one must wait on ideas. You cannot coax real ones to you. And let, as it were, a skin grow naturally round and through them. If you are not free, you can only, when the ideas come hot, seize them with the skin in tatters, raw, crude, in some parts beautiful, in others monstrous. Why print it then? Because those rare parts must not be lost. If I could get a few months after the war to work and absorb myself completely into the thing, I'd write a great thing. I'm enclosing a poem I wrote in the trenches, which is surely as simple as ordinary talk. Marsh had often complained that he was a bit obscure in his poetry. Surely as simple as ordinary talk. You might object to the second line as vague, but this was the best way I could express the sense of dawn. The darkness crumbles away. It is the same old druid time as ever. Only a live thing leaps my hand, a queer sardonic rat as I pull the parapet's poppy to stick behind my ear. Droll rat, they would shoot you if they knew your cosmopolitan sympathies. Now you have touched this English hand, you would do the same to a German. Soon, no doubt, if it be your pleasure to cross the sleeping green between. Now Rosenberg chooses the rat as his interlocutor, and the rat's mocking presence enables Rosenberg to draw out the complexities of that situation which you might find either to come to eat too facile to do it directly, but the rat itself focuses that moment of connection between the two opposing lines. The rat considers the humans, and the poet, sticking a poppy behind his ear, considers the rat. Now, in his earlier second version, I told you there were three versions, it took him a long time to get this right, and we've been talking a lot about manuscripts, and, and in the follow-up exercise, I suggest you look at some of the manuscript versions on the digital website and have a think about them. Now, in his second version, Rosenberg tried out these lines. Instead of saying, soon no doubt if it be your pleasure to cross the sleeping green between, he wrote, soon no doubt if it be your pleasure to cross the poppy-blooded field between. Our hands will touch through your feet. But in that final version, he's stripped down the image. He's rejecting poppy-blooded, and our hands will touch through your feet. 
uh, and they must have expressed something that he really wanted to say. Why did he do it? Perhaps because it was too literal, too explicit. His friend Rodka would probably have said, let the image speak, let the image speak, don't tell us what it's about. And I think there is something of that. He's thinking, right, yes, I want the poppy, but poppy-blooded field, that's a bit obvious, isn't it? Everybody's used that, we'll think about that again. Uh, So the idea, so he just leaves the, the rat touching the English hand and doing the same to a German. At the end of July 1916, he wrote to Bottomley, simple poetry, that is where an interesting complexity of thought is kept in tone and right value to the dominating idea so that it is understandable and still ungraspable. So that's (coughs) what he's doing. He's trying to simplify but not make it simple, not make it simplistic. I'm going to show you. There he is, sketching himself in the trench. Can you see the marmalade jar? Okay. I think it might be a mouse rather than a rat, but you're getting the general idea. Okay, those are black beetles, cockroaches, and that is the rat's headquarters. (laughs) So there you are. Um... Often people say that you know Rosenberg was rather you know was rather grim, but he had a great sense of humor. He had that Cockney Jewish sense of humor, and you can see it. And it's in the poem too, I I, I think. In the twenty third of July, nineteen sixteen, these are all postmarks. Rosenberg never dated his letters. This is going back to manuscripts again. Fortunately, they all kept the envelopes, or we'd have no idea when he wrote what and to whom. Uh, he was asked to date his letters by Bottomley, of course, the Georgian Edwardian, you know, um, literary man who knew that dates were important. And Rosemary said, I don't know the date. How would I know the date? In fact, they probably were specifically not told the date, so they couldn't reveal anything untoward in their letters to the enemy. The poem in the trenches, I altered a little and have asked my sister to send on to you. I left a line out, a shell's haphazard fury after irrevocable earth buffet. Don't think I made my meaning quite clear that it is a shell bursting, which has only covered my... He leaves the word out, but I think he means myself. And the poppy I plucked at the beginning of the poem still on my ear with dust. It's a shell bursting. It is one of a sequence of dramatic war poems I want to write. In the Trenches is a very, very brief, and it is rather a, a, a commonplace little first draft, and you'll find it on the, on the digital website. Um, and if you look at what he starts off from those four lines, he then moves gradually through all these changes into the final version. In the final version, the emphatic poppy-blooded of the earlier version becomes the more suggestive poppies whose roots are in men's veins. Poppies whose roots are in men's veins drop and are ever dropping. But mine in my ear is safe, just a little white with the dust. Mm-hmm. He's very good, I think, also at the, at the downbeat ending, which is somehow very telling. And also, we've been talking a lot about the ear, particularly with, with Thomas and with, with Gurney, and that's, of course, crucially important also to Rosenberg. Remember, this is not his first language. They probably spoke Yiddish at home. But the Whitechapel Library uh, and the Slade School had, had, had done their stuff. 
that last line, just a little white with the dust, is all monosyllables. Um, very simple, very, very stripped down, but enormously evocative. And you see he's used the whiteness of the dust. It's the sensuous painter's eye again. The conventional blood colour of the poppy is now implicit, <coughs> and it's bleached in to the whiteness of the dust. And it's the dust of mortality, of course, as well as just the dust that the shell has blown up. It unites the survivor, the dead, and the poppy into a brief moment of intense awareness. And it's enriched by these subtle interactions of red and white. Those are the only colours you've got. You've got, you've got the sleeping green of no man's land, but apart from that, you've just got the red and the white playing off each other. He's writing all these in the trenches, if not actually in the front line, perhaps just behind the lines um, in the YMCA. Another constraint, as I said, was finding paper, pencil, and light to read and write by. I shan't say I don't get the time to read, but when we've done our day's work and get under the tent, we are in tents just now, it is dark and lights are not easy to get out here. This is Tobottomly again. And a third, of course, was this constraint, was this irksome inability to keep books and papers together. The letters are full of requests, as I said to his correspondents, to keep draft poems for him and not to send him cloth-bound books. In fact, at any time, I prefer cheap-bound books I can spoil by reading anywhere. I often find Bibles in dead men's clothes, and I tear the parts out I want and carry them around with me. Well, as you know, he's just come to the Bible for the first time in the Whitechapel Library, and of course, it's very touching, this, the men, the corpses, he is, of course, dealing with the corpses. He was very often um, allocated to these working parties, probably because... A soldier once said, because he wasn't probably a terribly good soldier, so they tended to sort of shift him, you know, <laughs> uh, off, to, off to these working parties and clearing up wire and going out wiring and also actually having to shift the dead bodies. I and mean, he really did get his hands dirty. And I think that image of him, the fact that the men have carried their Bibles with them, so so many of the corpses have their Bibles with them, and he takes them because he somehow knows that that would, be, that would be all right. And his need is so great to have something to read, something important, something that, that will weigh with him. And so he tears the Bibles apart and carries it round with him. It was nonetheless extraordinary that as a private soldier who spent 20 months in the trenches with only one home leave that Rosenberg managed to write anything at all, let alone what he did write. And as soon as conditions eased a little, in May 1917, when camping in woods behind the lines, his imagination revived after the hard winter. It is that I've had a little more time in the day to myself, and I'm with a small loading party by ourselves that I've been able to write these two things. Now, one of these was probably returning We Hear the Larks, which... Uh, I haven't given you, you can find it uh, anywhere, it is the other, uh, it is one of the other great poems, and I didn't think we had time to look at it in, in, 
with it, the intensity it deserves. But particularly, remember the image of Hark, Hark, the Lark that he drew, that he drew uh, at the Slade. The Lark, of course, was another great image of the battlefield, and he wasn't the only poet to use it. Um, and also, of course, it also did have a... The Lark, Lark comes freighted with a, with a literary heritage, the great poem by Shelley to a Skylark. He would certainly have read and known at the Whitechapel Library. There was also Meredith's, George Meredith's poem, Lark Ascending, which, of course, Vaughan Williams takes... Uh, and creates uh, a music music for um, uh, after the war. So in that sense, he he you know he's aware. I don't say he was aware of, of of all those things, but he would have read Meredith and he would have read Shelley. Um, and it's a short poem with a vivid sense of a particular intense moment, transcending the dull and dangerous routine of the trenches, and is always with Rosenberg the focus for the inextricable fusing of the power and danger of beauty. We've heard that Gurney uh, pursued beauty you know, through the trenches. Well, so did Rosenberg, but he, he was not, I think, shocked by the war in the way, perhaps, that Wilfred Owen, that the poets who came from those Christian traditions of London, the poets who came from a, a sort of settled, um, secure English background, um, he knew that life was tough. It had always been tough, and he knew it was dangerous. Uh, that didn't stop him longing and wanting the for the beautiful. But what he does is that sense of the precariousness of beauty and of life and of all the things he, he so wanted to do, somehow he turns them into the power, the power source for his poetry. The night patrol in Returning We Hither Larks returns to the camp exhausted, looking forward to a little safe sleep. But hark, joy, joy, strange joy. Lo, heights of night, heights of light ringing with unseen larks, music showering our upturned listening faces. Death could drop from the dark as easily as song, but song only dropped. The current of poetry that always seems to flow through his sensibility wells up once more and refreshes the most squalid and tedious of army tasks. So I do urge you to go and read Returning We Hear the Larks. And it ends with a series of wonderful images um, of, of, of danger and, and beauty. In April and May 1917, he's moving about um, the front line again. He, uh, he he's he's shifted from from unit to unit. I am now with the Royal Engineers, and we go wiring up the line at night. That's one of his poems. Uh, just to give you a feel of the of the of the manuscripts, that's to another Georgian poet, Trevelyan, R.C. Trevelyan, and um, talking about his day. I'm now with the Royal Engineers, and we go up wiring go wiring up the line at night. I wrote a poem about some dead Germans lying in a sunken road where we dumped our wire. I've asked my sister to send it on to you, though I think it commonplace. Well, this was Dead Man's Dump, uh, which is his most epic war poem. I'm not going to read it all again. It's too long and too dense to do uh, uh, at this time. But again, I urge you to, to look at it, to read it, and to give it time. 
just going to read you a couple of extracts. A man's brain splattered on a stretcher bearer's face. His shook shoulders slipped their load, but when they bent to look again, the drowning soul was sunk too deep for human tenderness. <coughs> now, Rosenberg's ambition was to bring to bear on the immediate physical experience of the trenches, which he can do, I think, as well as Sassoon, the man's brain splattering on the stretcher bearer's face. You can't really get much more graphic than that. But he brings to bear on that his insights into the wider nature of creative and destructive power. And this is where he draws in all his reading and his, his, his Jewish Hebrew background, that Hebrew mythology, which he rejected. He was not orthodox himself uh, as a Jew, and he writes very critical poems about the, the Godhead in his, um, uh, in his, in his youth, in his, his other poems. And he, he takes, I think, in the example of Blake, who was another great sort of um, iconoclast and, and radical, and I think Rosenberg takes from that too. But all those things feed into this notion of an enormous destructive power, both destructive and creative, at the heart of the universe. The frantic activity of the battlefield is measured against the ageless power of the earth and the natural world. But nature is not, in Rosenberg, a victim. It is not scarred. It is not a beautiful pastoral Arcadian idyll to be destroyed. Nature in Rosenberg always fights back. It's seductive, but it's dangerous and devouring. What fierce imaginings their dark souls lit. Earth, have they gone into you? Somewhere they must have gone, and flung on your hard back is their soul sack, emptied of God ancestral essences. Who hurled them out? Who hurled? And I think that Blunden and Brooke and Gurney uh, and even Owen um, underneath it all, the other war, but still hold to the romantics vision, that great romantics vision, a beautiful natural universe quickened by spiritual power which can be shared by mankind if they access it in the right way. But Rosenberg stands aside from this tradition. For him, humanity with its fierce imaginings is central. He does not mourn the dead like Owen. He's not elegiac. I mean, there are elegiac moments. I mean, that lovely thing about the drowning soul is sunk too deep for human tenderness. It's very elegiac, but it's not a sort of grief-stricken poem. Um, he celebrates the human value of the destroyed life, and I think this is his, his great strength, the life half-used. Um, none saw their spirit's shadow shake the grass, or stood aside for the half-used life to pass out of those doomed nostrils and the doomed mouth when the swift iron burning bee drained the wild honey of their youth. Wonderful, the half-used life, which is the title I gave my long-ago biography uh, of Rosenberg, because I felt it was so telling. And you notice again the wild honey. Remember that early poem of his, the, you know, the gold, the honey gone, left his heart of cold. And he's reusing that image, the, the idea of the, the bullet as the bee, as, the, as the, the iron burning bee. So he's really got the fusion of a, of a, of a, of a natural world and a destructive uh, mechanical one. Well, the last of it is. is, is, is fairly quickly told, um, 
During that last summer, he did not shut out the strain of war, but made the war and its effect on him serve his own purpose. Now, the price for a private soldier was very high, as he said to Bottomley, he forgot his gas helmet um, uh, one day, and that resulted in seven days' pack drill. Probably not something that Owen and the others always had to, to cope with. I do it between the hours of going up the line and sleep, he wrote in August 1917, but these were precious hours, you see, when he could have been writing or reading, and they were, they were gone. He felt he still had so much to do. I don't suppose my poems will ever be poetry, right and proper, until I shall be able to settle down and whip myself into more expression. As it is, my not being able to get poetry out of my head and heart causes me sufficient trouble out here. Not that it interferes with the actual practical work, but with forms and things I continually forget, and authority looks at from a different angle and perspective. In September 1917, he returned home to Dempsey Street on leave for the last time. Um, he's with his brother. It's a charming image, this. This is his brother Elcon on the left, and Rosenberg is in the family hat and suit, <laughs> which again tells you a lot, I think, about, about the background. So this is the family hat and suit, which is why it just doesn't fit properly. And there's a sort of touch of Charlie Chaplin about it, which I think is rather charming. He's actually doing a sort of uh, mockery. However, he said to Bottomley, I feel restless here and unanchored. We have lived in such an elemental way so long, things here don't look quite right to me somehow. On his return to his battalion in October 1917, he reported sick and was sent to hospital in Etarpe, but at least he could rough out some poems and read the third Georgian poetry book, at least in hospital, you see, he could read his books. By February 1918, he was transferred to the 1st Battalion and moved to Arras. My own battalion is broken up, and what was left of them mixed up with other battalions. Just now, we are out for a rest, in inverted commas. Poetry seems to have gone right out of me. I get no chance even to think of it. Something terrible had happened to the 1st Battalion, <laughs> that they had to transfer people from the 11th Battalion to make up the ranks. I mean, the fact that someone like Rosenberg would find himself in the 1st Battalion was really a very, very telling. Um, in his penultimate letter to Bottomley on the 24th of February, it is clear that he has no chance to write under the pressure of the move. No drug could be more stupefying than our work, to me anyway, and this goes on like that old torture of water trickling, drop by drop, unendingly on one's helplessness. I find I can't copy these bits from The Unicorn, which is a play he was trying to write, so I'm sending one or two poor things, but I aim for something in them. I'm enclosed in the envelope, were holographs, that's uh, manuscripts all in his handwriting, of three poems, including a typescript of Returning We Hear the Larks. A few things which I'm not very pleased with, but I'll, I'll work on them later. On the 7th of March, 1918, Rosenberg wrote his last letter to Bottomley, under pressure, knowing that they were about to go up the line again. He acknowledges that death seems to underlie even our underthoughts, but there is always an indomitable quality to Rosenberg. He's thinking ahead. He's hoping for a transfer to the Judeans, which is the Jewish battalion in Mesopotamia. His friend Jacob Epstein uh, w was there. Um, and he's looking forward to meeting Bottomley one day and the great peacetime pleasure of reading one of Bottomley's plays.
And on the 28th of March, after four days in the front line, the battalion was back in the reserve trenches and Rosenberg had just time to answer Edward Marsh's letter and enclose his last poem through these pale, cold days. It's really my being lucky enough to bag an inch of candle that incites me to this picture of punctual epistolary. I must measure my letter by the light. There we are. That's actually the manuscript of In the Trenches, his, one of his early drafts of Break of Day. Um, I must measure my letter by the light. I've heard nothing further about the Jewish battalion, but when we leave the trenches, I'll inquire further. I wanted to write a battle song for the Judeans, but can think of nothing strong and wonderful enough yet. Here's just a slight thing. I've seen no poetry for ages now, and you mustn't be too critical. My vocabulary, small enough before, is impoverished and bare. On the 28th of March, the Germans la uh, launched their last offensive of the war. The front line, including the first King's Own Royal Lancasters, was overrun. Uh, on the, the battalion war diary on the 29th of March just simply has, in the line, battalion heavily shelled on the 29th. On the 1st of April, in the early hours, Rosenberg was killed. We don't really know much about it. We, uh, we've been trying to find out, but we don't know much about what happened. They were overwhelmed. Um, probably they were on their way back. They were asked to stand their ground, um, and they would have turned to face the enemy. They weren't actually in the front line, but the front line was shifting, so they turned to face the enemy. And I think it is important bearing in mind what Gurney had said, to say they did stand their ground. Rosenberg and his comrades did not falter. They were killed, but they threw the Germans back. And that, I think, is worth remembering. They would want that to be remembered. His body was eventually interred with 11 of his comrades in Bayer Road, East British Cemetery near Arras. And you can go and see his grave. And I hope if you do go to Arras, you will do so very moving. And on Rosenberg's gravestone below his rank dates and regimental badge are carved the following. Buried near this spot, they couldn't disentangle all the bodies, of course. They found the identity tags, which is how they knew he was there. The Star of David and the words artist and poet. And I would simply say that Rosenberg never took the easy way out in his life or his poetry. He was a harassed private soldier but he set himself, and succeeded, I think, he set himself to experience and endure and to produce what he could out of that experience. Thank you. Thank you. So I ran over it with her.